0: Okay, so we're recording. All right, brothers, it's great to be together. Uh, this class is called Supernatural. If that's not what you're interested in, you should uh, find another location perhaps, right? No interested in the supernatural. Uh, so this is Supernatural. Uh, we've got about one minute, so I'll give it one more minute uh, in, in case uh, people are still straggling in. Uh, but let me make a couple of comments um, about the class before we just jump into our study. This is a Bible study, yes. all right? So this is this is going to be pretty meaty. Um, this, this conversation is designed to get you thinking and to challenge your thinking. You're not going to walk out of here with seven awesome things that I need to do to be a more spiritual person. Um, that's not my objective at all. What I think you are going to walk out of here with is a much greater appreciation of the supernatural world that we all inhabit. Um, the general supernatural hierarchy of heaven and heavenly beings. We're going to talk about that. All right, so we would call that maybe the heavenly host. Um, Sometimes we call that the spirit world. Um, Sometimes that's the realm of the angels. All right, so we're going to talk about that. That's objective number one, discussing the supernatural and the spiritual world in terms of its structure from what we can know in Scripture. And then the second thing we want to cover is this idea of God's family as a blended family, a fusion of the divine and the human, right? Which is where we're all going, according to Ephesians 3 and other other scriptures, right? So those are the two things we're going to talk about today. What does the Bible say about the supernatural, specifically the spiritual world? And then secondly, the implications of, of that for the Christian, right? For me as a person of flesh, filled with the Holy Spirit, why do I need to know about these things, and where am I going and what's going to happen to me when I get there? And that's an awful lot to cover in 50 minutes. Um, so we're, I have 13 scriptures that I'm going to refer to. We will not be able to read all 13 scriptures. All right, so this, this, the other thing I want to say before we start is this class assumes you have an above-average knowledge of the Old Testament right, that the things I'm going to refer to, you have at least read. The passages that I'm going to allude to, they're not, wow, I've never seen that before, right? So if if you're in that situation and and you don't have that kind of working knowledge of the Old Testament, that's okay. Um, I will publish my notes, my research, my Greek and Hebrew word studies, and all of my slides along with this audio. So you will have 50-page uh, compendium, if, 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 if that's what you're into, okay? If you're not into that, that's okay. You can ignore all of that. But I have, for about six months now, been working on this topic, and I have all kinds of information, more than we can possibly share, um, and it's 2.02, so we're going to begin the class um, in, in earnest. So um, let me say this. Let's talk a little bit about terminology, okay, and, and what we call things. You know, the Bible in the, both the Old and the New Testament describes God as a king, all right? And we know that God also has a kingdom. God has both a heavenly kingdom, which is the place that we would say God lives or God resides currently, and God also has an earthly kingdom, which is not confined just to the church, but it's everything over which God has dominion or power or rule on earth, So animals and plants and the earth itself, the cosmos, everything God created is technically speaking part of God's kingdom. He reigns over all those things. The church is, if you will, the human manifestation of God's bigger kingdom. Does everybody kind of follow that, right? So when I say kingdom of God, I don't mean church necessarily. It includes the church, but I mean everything over which God rules, all right? So terminology, right? So when I say king or kingdom... The second thing is if you have to think about king, not so much as like the king of England, although perhaps a little bit, but more like ancient Middle Eastern kings, all right? So these kings would have a household, right? So think of a large palace, a wealthy Middle Eastern king, a large household. If that comes back up, um, um, just let me know and we'll we'll figure it out. Did we get a new bulb or is that just the… Uh... No, we were messing around with it. It looks like it's working. Same one, but we're not connected, right? Yeah, we are not connected. Do you want me to take your laptop? Sure, if you want to do that. See what you can figure out there. All right, so God has a kingdom, and God has, a. think of God's house for a minute suspend reality. God has a castle. All right, and in that castle, he has a court, right? So we know that Jesus sits on the right hand of the throne of God, right? He is the son of the high king. So maybe some of you are thinking Lord of the Rings mythology. There's a lot of this in that, okay? So he's the high king. He is the heir to the throne. But there's also a heavenly court, right? And in God's court, you have things like messengers. The Hebrew word for that is malak. It means one who is sent. Messengers, sometimes we call them angels. We also have warriors. Think of the chariots of fire and the horses that we see, you know, in the the life of Elijah and Elisha as one example, right? Um, There are scribes. There are angels that write things down. Sometimes you'll see that, especially in the Old Testament. And here's the thing that's probably a little bit new. God also has other sons. Sometimes in the Old Testament, in fact, many times in the Old Testament, the heavenly host is, are referred to as the sons of God. Right? So go over to Job chapter 1. All right. Again, lots of scriptures. We will not get to all of them. Okay. But this divine house, Divine household, this divine family. Job chapter 1. So we're going to go in chronological order here as well. We're going to begin with Job and work our way through the New Testament. So Job is actually the most ancient of the books that we have um, in Scripture. It's The date is the earliest. Wow. And so I'm going to go in chron- even though it doesn't appear at the beginning of the Bible, right? The Bible is not in chronological order. Um, I think we're good. You may want to... Um, it's working? It's working? Yeah. Oh, then great. Then I'll, get, I'll give you guys back the remote. Wow. Oh. Wow. Ah! <laughs> For those of you listening at home, a brief interlude. <laughs> great. Hey, hey, look at that. Awesome. Okay. Again, I'm going to publish all this data, so it's going to be fine. But Job chapter 1. All the slides, everything will be available for you. Job chapter 1. You guys know this passage, right? Verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then he goes on, and of course he has the conversation about Job. Notice where this happens. Where does this occur? In the heavenly realms, right? And it says the angels, the Hebrew word there is, is the word Elohim, right? Which simply means divine beings. Alright, so the, these divine beings, this whole divine council, all this, this large group, we don't know how many, but this large group of divine beings comes into the presence of God, and they're presenting themselves before the Lord for whatever reason, we don't know, and then it says Satan also comes with them. Again, by way of terminology, in our NIV Bibles, Satan here is capitalized, which makes it seem like a proper noun. The challenge with that is it makes it seem like there's only one Satan, And Satan actually is a description, not a name. In the Old Testament, the word Satan means to accuse. And so if you were to read this text in Hebrew, it would say, um, then Ahasan came before God, a Satan, an accuser, one of many possible accusers, not the one and only the big guy in the red suit. So that's important, right? Here's why that's important. What I'm suggesting is that in the heavenly realms there's this large contingent of spirit beings called Elohim, sons of God, angels. They're this large contingent. Some of them are bad. Some of them accuse. And so as God is, is looking at the life of Job, one of those evil sons, those evil spirits, comes and accuses in this situation. Look over in Job 38. Now again, if you're starting to scratch your head and your heresy alert goes off, Um, Just hold your horses and and, um, come see me afterwards. (laughs) Now, some of these things, they're head scratchers. But if you stick with me, I think you'll find that at least it's something worth considering. Here's the other thing. Most of what I'm going to share today, I'm very certain of. There are a few things that I'm more, there are more suggestions. When I'm speculating, I'll say so. All right? So if I don't say I'm speculating, that means I think we have very good biblical evidence for the things I'm saying. If I'm suggesting something, I'll say so. All right? Job 38, verse 2. The Lord answers Job out of the storm here. It says, Who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? And here's the important verse. When the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. What's being suggested in this passage is that when God created the heavens and the earth, there was God the Father, God the Son, the Spirit was hovering over the waters, and the angels, the angels, that angelic host was standing there watching and they were rejoicing that there was someone else with God when he created the earth. We would call that the heavenly host. This is not the only passage that suggests it. It's just one of the most clear. 1 Kings chapter 22. And I know we're going to put a little pace on it here. Come on, bro. I think I wrote 2 Kings on that. I did. And it might be 2 Kings. A lot of scriptures. It's 1 Kings 22, so the slide is wrong. 1 Kings 22, in verse 19. We'll pick it up. um, Yeah, this this is a prophecy of a prophet named Micaiah. Some of you may be familiar with this passage. Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven sitting around him, standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I'll entice him. By what means? The Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets. You will succeed in enticing him. And the Lord said, go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Here's what I want to focus on. What's happening here? You've got a rogue king. God says, we've got to do something about this. So he calls together his divine counsel. It's him and all of these angelic beings. The, again, B'nai Elohim, sons of God, would be the actual literal translation. So God is there with this huge crowd of Consider them advisors, and I don't mean advisors in that God takes their advice. I mean that they work collaboratively. God takes no one's advice, amen? Amen. God is the king of kings, right? He is Yahweh. He is God Almighty. These other guys, he created them. But they come before him together, and they collaborate on the best way to deceive this king. Why is this important? God doesn't need to work with those beings, but sometimes he chooses to. Sometimes he chooses to. So they have, in some sense, a judiciary power here, right? They're going to go and judge. They're going to go and create judgment. Psalm 89. Everybody following me so far? And yeah. you're going, yeah, okay, maybe. <laughs> Psalm 89. Scholars call this idea the divine counsel, right? Counsel. council, Right? Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L not S-E-L. They're not advising, they're meeting together. Right? Like the school council, not the school counselor. Right? I-L, not E-L. Everyone understands that distinction, right? Very important distinction, otherwise we probably are talking about heresy. Psalm 89, verses 1 through 7. I will sing of the Lord, again, chronological, right? So we looked at um, Job, Then we looked at kings. During the time of the kings, that's when the psalms were written. So we're moving forward in chronology. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands forever, that you establish your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servants. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens... Praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness, too, in the assembly of the Holy Ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council, I-L, of the Holy Ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Notice this again. This divine council imagery, right? It says that the heavens praise you, but you know what else praises God? The assembly of the other heavenly beings. They're praising God as they're watching Him work in human history, as they're watching Him create. They're saying, "Praise God." Amen. And then it says, "Who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings?" There are other spiritual beings up there with God, but He is incomparable. They are with him, they are divine, but they are not God. They are created by God. Very important distinction. I am not saying that there's more than one God. I am not saying that. There is only one, but he created these other beings that are sometimes called sons of God, and they also are up there with God or out there with God, rejoicing with God. No one is like God, Psalm 82. Stuff, right? on, Stick with me here. The so what is coming. Come on, man. This, is just, this is important. Yeah. Come on, this is just kind of proving the point that there are these other divine beings out there. Verse 1, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. The NIV has the scare quotes in it there, right? How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Notice in verse 6, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. He's talking to his divine participants there. The assembly from verse 1. But you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth for the nations are your inheritance. Very important piece of information here. There's this great assembly, the gods. But notice what happens to the gods that God has given power to. God's small g in verse 6. He says, you know what? You're going to die. You're all sons of the Most High, but eventually you're going to die. You're going to fall like every other ruler. These beings that God has created are mortal They eventually die. Not mortal in the same sense that we are, but mortal in the sense that they are not from eternity to eternity like God. They are created entities, and in that way, they're similar to us. We are visible, they are invisible. We live on earth, they live in the heavens. We were created, they were also created. We are mortal, they are also mortal, in a different way, but in that sense that they have an end point. They don't go forever and ever and ever and ever. That's not their destiny. Why is this important? Because these gods fell. These gods fell. They were capable of free will and they can and did fall. Did you ever wonder how a snake ended up in God's perfect garden? How did he get there in the first place? We don't have time to get into all of that, but Genesis 6. We're going to look at the Nephilim passage. The infamous Nephilim passage. no, we're not going to uh, deal with who they are and talk about all of that. I would be guessing. But I want you to notice this, right? So we have these, all of these divine beings. Then they fell. And you say, well, when? Well, my sense is, my theory, I'm speculating, it, it precedes the fall of man in Genesis. Why? Because it seems like there was already a rogue god roaming around in Genesis that enticed Adam and Eve. Right? That's my personal conviction. There are scholars that agree with that, there are scholars that disagree with that, but whenever it happened, it happened a long, long, long time ago that these gods fell. Here's an example of, of one of the ways that they fell. This is not the only account, but it's one way. Genesis six and verse one, when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, bene Elohim, same word, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. So the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went into the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And of course right after that comes God's judgment on mankind and then we get the flood. Here's what scholars say about this and here's what I think. It seems that somewhere back in prehistory, these sons of God, these beautiful creatures that God had made that were living in the heavens, they had free will and they looked down and they said, wow, these daughters of men are fantastic, we want to go and be with them. That actually took place because the Bible says it took place, which meant gods became physical in some sense, came down and created a race of beings that lived on the earth before the time of Noah and then during the time of Noah. Now this is interesting because there's a fall narrative mirror here. Think about this, a fall narrative mirror. Here in Genesis 6, what happens? Gods, small g, See man and they say, We like what you have, we want to have some of that. What happens with Adam and Eve? They think we what is the promise that the snake makes? You can be like God. So the second fall, man's fall, is man looking up there and going, I want what you have. And so they both fell because of vanity, wanting what the other had. Right? This is a fairly well-established idea. Among biblical scholars, that there was this pre-fall, a divine fall, followed by a human fall, and in many ways, mirror images of one another. Them lusting after what we had, and, and Adam and Eve, in a sense, lusting after what they had. And it all falls apart. Look over in Second Peter, Come on. Come on, really? chapter 1. Peter refers back to this incident. Now, let me just say this. This is where it gets a little weird, okay? These are going to be head-scratcher moments. Head-scratcher moments. But stick with me, because after we cover this content, we'll take a quick break, and I'll give you some summary, and we may take one or two very quick questions, and then we'll move on, all right? Is everybody following where, we're, where we've gone so far, right? We're suggesting that there's this divine hierarchy, that they live with God, and that some of them went rogue. Specifically here in Genesis 6, it seems like there may have been other instances as well, based on Job 1 and some of these other passages. But they went rogue and they fell. Revelation 12.5 is also a helpful place, right? There was war in heaven. You guys know that passage? It talks about Michael and his angels. So, so clearly there's some kind of, there's a cosmic battle of some kind. There's a cosmic lusting after women of some kind. Big surprise, men struggle with those same things today, right? Yeah. Anger, Rage competitiveness, lust, nothing new under the sun, or apparently in the heavens either. Second Peter chapter one. Verse three, His divine power, God's, has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Think about how that telegraphs back to the Genesis narrative that we looked like that we looked at. It said, God gave us everything we need. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Exactly what Adam and Eve thought they didn't have. Exactly what he thought they didn't have. So down in chapter 2, in verse 4, again, we're skipping ahead, but if you read through the rest of of chapter 1, you'll see the argument follows here. But Peter's setting us up. He's saying, God has given us everything we need. We didn't need to go grabbing for it. Verse 4 of chapter 2, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul, By the lawless deeds he saw and heard, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. I want you to notice all the things that are referred to in this passage. Talks about angels not being spared when they sinned. Again, most commentators, most scholars believe that is a direct reference to Genesis 6. Why? Because the very next thing Peter talks about is the flood narrative and and, and Noah, who was a descendant of those unions. Then he brings up Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, why would he bring up Sodom and Gomorrah here? What happened in Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah? Genesis chapter 19, we don't have a chance to go over there, but in verse 1 through 5, when those angelic men come to the door, what do the men want to do? Have sex with them. All of this is... He's back and forth on these images. He's reminding us, don't, don't forget what happened in Genesis 6. Those angels, when, when they wanted something that God hadn't promised them, they fell. Don't forget what happened in the, the other way around. When those angels came down and they wanted to have sex with the men in Sodom and Gomorrah, he's mirroring these things. He's packaging, packaging them all together because the same thing is going on there that's going on in the church, which is people are striving after something that God hasn't given them. But the, the idea here is this, he's referring back to these divine falls. Let's take a minute and summarize. Here's what we've said so far. There's a divine family in the heavens created by God. We call them angels, we call them spirits. The Bible simply calls them Elohim, sons of God, or B'nai Elohim, sons of the Most High. That's a generic term, right? So Elohim is a little bit like the term car, right? So you have a car, but you may have a Toyota, or you may have a Subaru, or you may have a, right? So Elohim is a discriminator of, a, of an object, but it doesn't talk about brand or type or color, right? So Elohim, it's a general term, right? Jeannie is a girl. She's also my wife, right? She's a woman and a girl and a daughter and my wife and a sister. She has all of those things, but she is female. That's sort of the species, if you will, right? So Elohim is the species, angel, demon, et cetera, et cetera. Those are sort of the different Genus underneath the species, if, if you're more of a scientific kind of person. But there's a divine family in the heavens with God. They counsel, they meet with God on a number of different occasions. And God uses them much like a royal dynasty, like a royal household. Sometimes they'll be messengers, sometimes they'll be warriors. Think about the angel of the Lord at Bochim or other instances like that. Right? Right? There are other instances like that where he shows up and they say, hey, are you for us or for our enemies? And he goes, well, neither, but as an angel of the, as the commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. Right? So there are interactions like that. They perform various functions much like a royal court. And they interact with humans. They seem to have free will. They seem to be able to choose. And sometimes they fall and make bad choices. Or choices that are not what God would have them make. And the New Testament talks about how they long to look into the things that the Christian wants to see. So they do seem to have a will. These are God's heavenly sons, his divine sons. So what does all this have to do with us? Supernatural church. Look over in Mark 1. So that's all sort of ancient history. Let's look at the New Testament now. So what do we imagine would happen... If there's a divine realm filled with divine sons of God, some of whom mess up and some of whom do great, and there's this huge cosmic warfare that Romans 12 or Revelation 12 in verse 5 talks about, so now you have the one and only begotten Son of God showing up on earth. What do we imagine might take place when that happens? Well, very interestingly, you imagine exactly what does take place here in Mark chapter 1. In verse 21, it says, They went together to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, they went into the synagogue and they began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us before the appointed time? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How did they know who he was? They'd seen him before. They'd been with him before. And now he shows up and they say, Hey, aren't you a little bit early? (laughs) What are you doing here? Essentially is the conversation. This is a fascinating passage. Given what we've just talked about, yeah. it illuminates when Jesus shows up on earth, war is declared. Wow! Why do you think you see this huge influx of demonic activity in the Second Temple Judaism period, right before the church, and then when Jesus comes on, there's this huge increase in supernatural activity? It's not just because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John needed something to write about. It's because the end had begun, and they knew it and they knew it. Do you realize how powerful Jesus is? He ripped through the universe and invaded Satan's territory and he killed him. He wiped him out. He blew up his power. And when the demons saw him, they said, we know you. And of course, his response is, Be quiet. The NIV is kind. It's more like shut up. (laughs) He's like, enough of that. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. This is where it gets amazing. I don't know how many of you guys do Jesus studies when you study the scriptures with people. G and I are big fans of, of, of talking about Jesus early on in the studies. Many times even before we do a word study, certainly always before we do a discipleship study. Um, it's our personal belief that you can't call someone to be a disciple of someone that they have no idea who they are. So we tend to talk about Jesus quite a bit before we talk about following Jesus. Otherwise, we get commitments to discipleship, not commitments to Christ, right? That's right. Yes, that's right. Amen, we're not disciples of discipleship, we're disciples of Christ. That's a free advertisement. Hebrews 1, <laughs> a word from our sponsor. <laughs> the Montgomery County Church, amen, there you go. There's our sponsor today. Hebrews chapter 1 in verse 13. Now, you got to follow me here a little bit. Come on, bro. All right. there's, there's a lot going on here. We're actually going to start back a little bit earlier. I'm sorry, I'm not keeping up with the slides. Um, Hebrews 1. Our main text is in verse 13, but bear with me here a little bit. We're going to skim through this, this uh, Hebrews chapter 1. And you'll notice, again, what is this passage all about? It's about the way that Jesus is superior to the angels. That Jesus is a special son. He's different than all of the other sons of God that we've been talking about. Verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I become your father? Answer, none. These are all rhetorical questions, right? Psalm two, verse seven is that reference. You're my son, today I become your father. Second Samuel seven says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Capital S, not small s. Proper noun, right? Right? This is not a rank, it's a title. There's a difference. When God brings his firstborn into the world, verse six, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Whoa. A statement of absolute superiority. When this son came, all the other sons went, hallelujah. That these angels, these spirit beings that we've been reading about, they worship Jesus. He is completely unique and different than them. He makes his angels winds of fire, winds, his servants flames of fire, but about the sun he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is not like other sons. He's God. This is a claim to divinity. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions anointing you with the oil of joy this is one long argument saying Jesus is better Jesus is superior he is not just any other Elohim of God he is the king of kings he is the God of gods he is God himself and then he talks. this is very interesting in verse 10 he talks about his eternity he says the heavens the earth they're gonna perish but you remain he is eternal the earth going to go away. The other sons of God eventually be destroyed. Jesus will always live. <clears throat> to which of the angels, verse 13, did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Aren't the angels just ministering spirits who serve those who will inherit salvation? He just described hierarchy here. All those beings we've been talking about What are they for? Eventually, they will be your servants in the life to come. That Jesus, they will worship Jesus. We will worship Jesus. They will be lower. They're not going to be higher. They'll be lower. In fact, I would argue that they're actually lower already. Lower already. We'll get there. Hebrews 2. You guys following this? This, Hebrews 1 and 2, really important for this whole idea of who is Jesus in the hierarchy of God's house, right? It's an apologetic for his ultimate kingship. Hebrews 2, verse 5. It's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man, human, that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, so Jesus came down and was lower than, But then you crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. He became low so he could become high. This is a passage reversing divine hierarchy. This is a reversal text. In putting everything under him, God left nothing not subject to him. And again, it goes on. And we don't, well, we'll we'll look at verse 10 through 13 just because it's so awesome. In bringing many sons to glory, That's us. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation, our salvation, perfect through suffering. Catch this. Both the one who makes men holy, Jesus, and those who are being made holy, us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Notice how our rank keeps increasing. That in God's house, We will supplant the angels. We will be brothers to Christ. Again, he says in verse 13, Here I am and the children God has given me. Those other sons of God, they're not children the way that we're children. They're not brothers of Christ. They will never be redeemed. They will never be saved. And they will never be eternal. But you will. you will be gods. Heresy alert. We're going there in a minute. Small g, brothers, small g. When I say that, I mean you will someday inhabit the world of pure spirit. You will be sons of God in that sense. Chapter three, verse one. I'm going to have to pick up the pace a little bit here. Sorry about that. Again, all the notes and slides will be available. So, therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. Listen to this language, right? Your, 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 your ears should be tingling at this point with all these words. Who share in the heavenly calling. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. If Jesus Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. If we hold to our courage and the hope of which we boast. You know, we talked about at the beginning of the lesson how God has a house and God has a divine counsel, a uh, set of advisors. We actually will become that house. Wow. Romans 8. A more perfect union. How does this all transpire? You may be suspecting that the Holy Spirit is involved, and indeed, He is Romans 8, verse 12, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature. We all know this passage, right? I'm going to give you some context. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit testifies that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. Brothers, when you received the Holy Spirit, when you were baptized into Christ, you were grafted into God's house. Your position changed. You went from slave to son and you jumped over the angelic hierarchy. Now we're sons. Heirs. Co-heirs with Christ. What does that mean? That means that everything he gets, I get. Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. Home at last. We have 20 minutes, we're, 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 well, not quite. We were supposed to end early, so. Ephesians 3. We don't have time to read all 14 verses. I want to just point out a few things here. This passage talks a lot about the mystery, especially verse 6. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ. Look at verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul's saying, look, you know what the church is? It's the fusion of God's divine and heavenly family back into one. God sends his spirit in, in, into the heart of mortal men and makes them immortal. Our ultimate place is to be with God and reign with him forever. Let's look in Revelation 2 and 3, and we'll close there. You know, we didn't get the chance to read Ephesians 3.10, but while you're on your way over to Revelation, I'll just read it. It says, God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities, where? In the heavenly realms. What's he talking about? He's saying, look, when God did what he did in the church, the heavenly realms went unbelievable. Look what he did. Look what Colton became. And they're impressed. They're blown away by what's happened. Finally, Revelation chapter 2. And we'll close with this idea. You know, again, I've said we've gone chronologically and, and pretty much we have through the scriptures. And there's a reason why I wanted to do that because Usually in the Bible, doctrines or principles, they kind of build on themselves, right? So the things that you see in in the books of Moses tend to get amplified in the Kings and the Chronicles, right? And and they kind of lived out. And then the prophets sort of reinforce them, right? They enforce the covenant and kind of reframe it. And then, you know, you see this this period of the the judges where they kind of fail to live that way. And so the teaching kind of gets refined again. And then you come into the New Testament and you see sort of the New Testament version of all of these principles. And now here at the very end, it's not a surprise to find the language of reign and royalty for the new sons of God here at the end of all things. Letters to the churches, right? These are the latest documents that we have in the New Testament. And so in some sense, this whole theology is kind of fully baked now. right? So now you have Christians, many of whom have been Christians 30 or 40 years probably at this point, and they get these letters in chapter 2 and verse 24. Look what it says. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose another burden on you. Hold on to what you have until I come. Now listen to this. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a very important promise. He says, the Christian that overcomes will reign with Christ. And the image here is especially important because as you'll see from your footnote, it's Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, which is a royal enthronement psalm. This verse, he will rule them with an iron scepter, it was only previously applied to Christ and now Christ himself is applying it to the faithful, saved, persevering church. He you said, you're going to get what I get. That promise that God made me to rule the nations, if you just stay faithful, you will rule with me. 320, and we'll close. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me to him who overcomes. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Only kings get thrones. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you will reign with him forever. Right? That this... Holy pantheon of, of spiritual beings, all those beings that are out there, they have nothing on you. You are superior, more beloved, more powerful, a better future, a better hope because of Christ. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. Amen. Good job, Brett. Can you take questions?